When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Violin Podcast, where we have conversations with violinists from around the world. I'm your host, Eric Morgala, and I am so delighted for you to join us today. If you haven't done so already, if you're new to us, please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. It also helps out the podcast to provide more episodes for you. In today's episode of the Violin Podcast, I am delighted to speak with Anna Urpina, who is a Barcelona-based violinist who does a bit of modern violin and also Baroque violin. And our conversation today is about how to switch the mindset between Baroque and modern violin and uh, look forward to that conversation a little bit later in the podcast. To give you a little bit of context, the student who is now going to be in my violin studio has been on Zoom since March of 2020. March of 2020. So this student has not had a single in-person lesson, has been doing online lessons uh, for the last year and a half. So um, just to give you some context about that, and also uh, the teacher is no longer going to be teaching the student, and I've inherited the student to become a part of my studio. And now I want to talk about how to inherit a student properly, because this student may or may not have had a good experience with the previous teacher. I honestly don't know what the situation was beforehand, but I want to kind of share my thoughts as to what happened in the first trial lesson and some thoughts for you, if you're a teacher or an educator, for you to take home with you to help and help inherit a student and help with the transition, because I think the transition is very important to really um, talk about. So the first thing I did was to get as much information about the student and about the parent and about the experience as much as possible without being too nosy in your area or from across the country or from a different country. You never know because we're all so kind of interconnected through the music world. And you have to make sure you get enough information without being nosy so that way you can help your new student really um, thrive with the violin. And this situation was a very unique situation because this student did not have a lesson this week, and not to mention she had to do a, a recording for a recital. She didn't have a, a lesson, but also needed to do a recording for a recital. So I was put in a very unique situation where I have to give a lot of encouragement to the student without having to give too much technical or musical advice just because it was like the day or the night before that recording. So all I can do is just be a good support. And to give you context, this uh, student's about six or seven years old, Suzuki Book 2, and has been playing the violin for quite some time. But I did notice that there are some things technically wise, uh, technique wise that was different than how I would teach it. And it being the violin, how I teach the violin. Sorry for that. One thing that I noticed right away was um, just the overall like excitement towards the instrument. So I really wanted to capitalize on that. Okay, well, this person, the student, and the parent who was with the student during the lesson was like super enthusiastic. 
about the situation um, to have a lesson with me. And they're just so grateful to have a lesson right before the recording. So my job as a violin educator was to give as much support. I think that was the most important thing for me for the student to be successful. So even though I noticed some technical irregularities, it wasn't my job to kind of correct everything all in one lesson. I'm sure that's going to happen later on. But I just try to kind of give the student a lot of positive energy, a lot of positive um, outlook on the situation. And this person was playing Hunter's Chorus in the Suzuki book two. And it was, um, you know, it was good. And the intonation was really good. It was positive, a lot of good stuff. And it was more of like bigger picture ideas on how to play a successful performance with this student. You know, it wasn't so much about the technique or the intonation. And there were some moments where I'm like, you know, the reason why your intonation is not so good in this section, in this measure is because, you know, your wrist isn't out, for instance. You know, if you have a constant wrist straight out, then your fingers are going to fit in the right place on the right tape or whatever, right? So that was one of the tips that I gave the student, but it wasn't, it was like a quick tip. And this is something that is not like fixed overnight, as I'm sure you know. Just like little tiny details to kind of put the cherry on top on making them have a very good and successful recording. If you ever had a situation on inheriting a student, um, I would love to learn about your story. Make sure you email us at violinpodcast at gmail.com because I'm really interested to learn more about how you inherit a student and how you are um if you are currently inheriting students, a student or students, I would love to learn more about your situation and I would love to learn more about how you kind of dive into like your methodology and your curriculum once you've inherited a student from another violin studio or another music school. So let's say you are beyond the trial lesson and you are and the student and the parent is very interested in having lessons with you. You know, yay, you know that's really really awesome. What next? I would have three or two or three separate conversations. And the first one, I would have a conversation with the student. And in this conversation, the parent could be in the room. Uh, really doesn't matter. But in this case, you know, you try to set expectations of your studio, um, what your goals are for the student, what are some things that I see that couldn't help, that could improve and could help the student just be a better person, be a better musician, be a better violinist. So I would have that conversation with them. It would, it would be a very encouraging conversation. In this early age, you want to make sure that you're getting them excited because sometimes, you know, they might switch a cheat teacher to because they were not happy with him or her or whatever, and they want to just, you know, have a better experience uh, in music. And you just have to kind of put all those things into consideration. Now, the next conversation I would have is with the parent alone. And I would talk to the parent who is constantly going to the violin lessons. I would not talk to someone in the family who just kind of pops in once every, you know, once every blue moon, you know, you want to be talking to someone who is consistently in the violin lesson. They understand the language. They understand what it takes to kind of be a better violinist. And I would talk to that parent about some of the things that, you know, you see potential in, but also this is something that you would talk about, like the, you know, the cons of the student's violin playing. You would talk about intonation or maybe dexterity in left hand or bow hold or having a straight left wrist. You know, I can't tell you how many times I have to talk to parents about straight left wrists. I feel like that's like been my motto this entire year. And I'm sure, um, I'm sure a lot of violin teachers are like rolling their eyes and start saying, yeah, of course, you know, straight left wrist for early beginner violinist. So you have to be, um, you have to open the conversation. You have to kind of open door 
for them to come in and to really, how do I say this? You want to make sure that you are, you know, not kind of insulting or criticizing their student too much. Um, you want to give them constructive criticism. I, you can say like, hello, so-and-so, you know, I feel like your daughter or your son has great potential in violin playing. However, these are some things that I'm noticing and these changes do take a long time and I kind of want you to, I want your help to help me, you know, be on the same boats, be on the same page about what the progress is going to be like, you know, and if you think about long term, like if you see the student two years from now, I see this student playing this piece this way. This is what we work on. This is how we're going to achieve it. Because if you educate the parent, I think that's also a very critical part in the process where the, the parent understands what you are trying to do. And if you set the tone from the very beginning, then you're not going to be like in the middle of the semester and like, okay, what is this teacher doing? Especially if you work in a music school, because that could lead to a lot of kind of awkward conversations with your boss or with the parent. And because, you know, the parents know their child the best. However, you are the, you know, you are the teacher. So you want to make sure that you are educating the parent as to what the expectations are, what you want the the student to do to help give them success. And of course, private lessons are such a personable thing. It's not like a public education music classroom where you're dealing with like, you know, 15 to 20 students at a time. Private lessons are a very intimate space and it should be a very safe space for everybody involved in the room. Uh, the student, the parent, and the teacher, they all kind of need to be on the same page and they're all working together to achieve the same goal. And once the parent is on board and once the students is on board, man, you're game to do anything. Because once you have this parent and the student on board and they believe in you and they trust you, even from like the very beginning, man, the the transformation is just like really, really amazing. I can give you one, one example where the parent was just so dedicated to helping their child in Suzuki book one. And it was just, it was an unbelievable transformation. They were so dedicated. They practice every day. And I think the next tip that I would consider and just in my situation, but it could also involve in your situation too, is the consistency behind what you're talking about. And you have to let the student know, you have to let the parent know, like you're not going to see progress right away, but you will see progress at the end of the year or by the summertime, or these are going to be like the little checkpoints that we have throughout the year to make sure that you are staying on track. And of course, we want to do this in moderation, right? Because if you're inheriting a student, this is just the first year and, you know, you're still kind of trying to get to know the student. You're still trying to get to know the family a little bit. And, you know, you're making a very personal connection. Um, you know, you're going to be a, a one of the biggest figures in this child's life for a very long time. So you definitely don't want to mess it up. But also you have to be on the same page, all three of you, you know, the parent, the student and the teacher all have to be on the same page to really you know, get the job done. And I can tell you right now that uh, the student that I mentioned earlier, the child is smiling a lot more. They feel more confident because they believed in the process and they listened to their teacher, me. Thank goodness they did because now that, you know, the child is happy, the parents are happy, the family is happy. And, but again, they, they're feeling this way because of an entire year of hard work. It was a lot of like bendy pinky, making sure that the bow grip is good, making sure that the left hand is good, making sure that the tone is good. It's it's a whole lot of factors that come into this. And um, I hope you found value in this. 
um, little short segment about inheriting a student because again, it's not really often talked about. And uh, if you want me to include more topics like this, I would love to hear from you uh, at violinpodcast at gmail.com or go to our website at violinpodcast.com. Leave us a message because we're really, really interested in you know getting to know you and creating this really, really awesome community. And we hope that the Violin Podcast is a resource for you to kind of get information and new ideas. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce Anna Urpina from Barcelona. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have Anna Urpina uh, from Barcelona, Spain, tuning in with us on the Violin Podcast today. Anna, good to see you. And uh, we just spoke uh, right before we started recording, and you said that the weather's been kind of funky lately. Right now, it's snowing in Massachusetts. And if this is for the record, today is April 16th, Friday, and it's snowing. We have a Northeaster. So, um, anyways, how are you no, doing? Very good. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not as cold as you. <laughs> Not as cold. Yeah, I could I could really use some of that warm Barcelona yeah. air right now. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah. Do you uh, tend to have problems with your instrument when you go to different climates? Because you do travel around Europe for different concert groups. Do you uh, do you experience any? Um, does your violin experience any trouble with the weather when you travel? Oh, yes, it's terrible. Actually, it's kind of a nightmare a little bit. And especially in, in Baroque violin with the, the gut strings, it's, oh my God, yeah, yeah. It's If if it's too warm or if it's uh, too cold, yeah, uh, it, they go out of tune, they break. Yeah, it's, yeah, they are very sensible. Particularly with Baroque violins, I can, I can assume with gut strings, they're not really as stable like a steel core string is, like on a modern violin. And you and you consider yourself both a modern violinist and a Baroque violinist. And we actually had Augusta McKay Lodge on the Violin Podcast in the early days of the Violin Podcast, who actually did a little bit of both as well. And you're one of the rare birds that do both as well. Can you talk a bit about your background in violin and how you're able to kind of switch between Baroque and modern violin? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I consider both of them a violinist because... Well, it's not easy to play both actually, because normally you specialize, uh, sorry, specialize uh, in in one instrument, but two, it's maybe sometimes too much. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, well, uh, I first started uh, modern violin. Yeah, I, I I studied abroad in in your Europe, also in US. I, I I studied in Madison, Wisconsin, in the university. And I did all my career in modern, um, yes, uh, played with several orchestras, playing my recitals, my concerts. And in some point of my life, um, I feel, I felt that I needed a, um, a change. And I wanted to explore something else. Uh, it's like some something was missing on me, no? And I didn't know what, but uh, yeah, by coincidence, I just applied for a festival in, in in Spain, very well known early music festival, and just I went there and I grabbed a baroque violin and played on it, and yeah, wow! I just felt in love. I mean, it was like yes, uh, love inside, yeah, in first sight. And well, uh, from from then I decided, okay, I like this also, and I would like to study more uh, more in detail. And I started to, to to study Baroque violin in Barcelona and Italy. And now, yeah, I play both of them and I have concerts, recitals in, yeah, so it's great. 
That's wonderful. I like, um, I also admire a lot of people who are able to switch from both. And it's also kind of similar to switching from violin viola. You know, there are very few people in the world, in my view, that can do both very well. Hence, we have Pinka Zuckerman. You know, the Pinka Zuckerman of the world can, <laughs> are brilliant in that sense. Um, are, there, are there any uh, sort of uh, broke composers that you're drawn to that you really like performing the most? I did see a couple of recordings that you have on your YouTube channel. And um, can, you, can you speak to some of the composers that you, you resonate with? Well, yeah, actually, in Baroque area, uh, we have such uh, so many composers that uh, I really didn't know. Because when you play modern, you, you always focus on on the repertoire, repertoire, normal repertoire. But yeah, when you go to Baroque, you discover wow, there are amazing composers that uh, I never knew or heard before. No, and yeah, well, I feel very comfortable with the uh, early Baroque, like. Um, uh, Uccellini, um, Castello, Fontana, they are the early ones, which also it, it's played in a different manner as the Baroque era, like nor, uh, like in the middle period. Then I like also to play Corelli, Vivaldi, um, Handel. It is a little Bach, of course. <laughs> Bach is the, <laughs> the god of, of every composer, I guess, the, the father. <laughs> And but yeah, I, I just remember uh, a moment in one of my conservatory classes where um, uh, there was a music theory professor that said, Bach, the greatest composer who ever lived, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, it's just something funny. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely Bach was um, definitely a very prominent composer towards uh, the Baroque. Um, to the Baroque genre, the Baroque era as well. Um, yeah, you also touched upon uh, Corelli and so on. Um, are there? How about Bieber? What do you What do you think of Bieber? Do you play Bieber at all? Well, uh, yes, yes, I love it because uh, Bieber has these uh, fifteen sonatas that um, they are they call the Rosari mystery sonatas because all of them. Are inspired uh, in religious in the in the Bible. No, there are different scenes of the Bible. For example, the first sonata is like the um, the angel Gabriel angel wh- when uh, he says to Maria that he's gonna have a baby. No, it's the Annunciation. Uh, then we have the 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 tenth uh, sonata, which is Crucifixion, and also you can see in in the in the score. Uh, it's very well. Uh, he wants to reproduce this uh, this feeling, no crucifixion. So there are like uh, three figures, like pam, 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 pam. pam. It means like um, how is it saying in English? I don't know. When the, the in the crew, you know, when Jesus Christ, there were. Well, I mean, yeah. So it means it means that no, and all of them uh, represent something no and the last one it's true that it's without bass continue it's only it's a passacaglia for solo violin but uh, yeah Weber was a, a very virtuoso violinist and all of these sonatas are very difficult and very virtuoso and and also one only the one the first one has not a scordatura but all of them has a scordatura which it means that um, you have to tune your violin differently so if you are doing uh, 
like a solo recital with only weaver sonata, you have to have like a five, six violin, different violins to play it because everyone, every piece is tuning differently. So yeah, it's, it's very, yeah, it's very interesting actually. What's really interesting is the way you kind of shift your mindset between modern and Baroque. And we actually have a question from Nuria and uh, she's interested in how you're able to practice how like what are some of your techniques in violin practice that you can um, they can give to any violinist speaking to um, or any violinist that's listening to the violin podcast at the moment and how are you able to change your mind or adjust your mindset from practicing a modern setup to a broke setup yeah it's very well a question i like it very much because uh, in the beginning uh, it's true that I couldn't switch uh, fast to the, the two violins. I mean, when I had to play Baroque, I needed my days of practice, only Baroque, to get used to the, you know. And when I, I was playing modern, I needed the same, the a few days to practice, really focusing, you know. But at some point, when you are doing this uh, during a lot of, uh, a lot of time uh, period, then um, I think something in my mind just, change or click and 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 finally now it's for me it's very easy to, to to switch i mean just i have to change my mind or and and it, it works you know but it's true that um what i find it also um it's when i play modern you are normally playing in 440 the the tuning so uh when you play baroque uh you play at 415 so it's like half tone uh, down, no? And and for me, it I, I normally I had perfect pitch, but since I play baroque violin, it's totally out of. I don't have it anymore because uh, now I can I can sing an A, but I don't know if it's four forty four fifteen. You know, it's a little bit crazy. It got crazy, no? But. Um, yeah, I think it's it's practice, a lot of practice and a lot of years of uh, of practicing, and and finally uh, you you arrive in a point that uh, you are able to switch super fast to one instrument to the other because you know them so well that it's not a, a problem at all. So, yeah, uh, and it, I arrived to this point that uh, even I play concerts with both uh, both both instruments and. And yeah, I'm able to do it and I enjoy it very much. So it's possible. I was just going to ask that question. If you are able to, like for all the perfect pitchers out there, if you have like a perfect pitch, um, how are you able to adjust? Like for me, I have I have perfect pitch. I also, you know, and I it always bothered me on the radio if I'm listening to some music, even if it's a pop song or if it's a symphony concert, like if they're just like, a couple cents sharp it bothered the it bothered me really really much so were you able to overcome that quickly or how long did it take you to overcome something like that it took it took long very long because when <laughs> it I took a playing, while yeah very long because yeah of course when i was playing baroque uh when i played played my a a string i just was listening g sharp you know all the time so yeah, of course. Then when I was reading the music, it didn't coincidence that the, the same notes with what what I was hearing. Hearing, so 
yeah, was really a mess up. My my brain was like dying all the time, no? And but at the end you get used that it's not a G sharp, it's an A, a new A, like a little bit flatter, but it's a new A. And finally your your ear uh, get used to that. But it's what I'm telling you that my ear now, my pitch, perfect pitch, it's totally dead. <laughs> Right. So the technique, obviously, for those of you who are listening to the Violin Podcast, if you're new to us, you know, please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that way you get notified for new episodes coming out. But for someone who is not familiar with Baroque Violin, can you talk about the technique? How How is the setup different than what a what a regular modern setup is like? Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, for start, all the instrument is different. It's different construction because uh, the neck um it's has less inclination than the modern violin which it, which means that the bridge it's lower than the modern and also uh it's uh flatter because in this period of time um they used to play a lot of chords uh double storms arpeggiatos so they needed like uh, all the strings quite flat not really like the the form of the bridge so uh the setup is different and then, uh, of course, the technique. Let's go to the technique, because you you don't you don't play with a shin rest and you don't play with a shoulder rest. So it's a big difference if you come from the modern that you have your shoulder rest, your shin rest, super comfortable, you know. And at the beginning, it's like, what? How can I hold the violin? No, I cannot hold the violin. It's failing all the time. No. Uh, because at the end, um, the te- the proper technique is to to hold the violin a little bit more in the middle, not such in the in a corner, no, in the middle. So, in this in this uh, angle, uh, it doesn't fall to the floor. <laughs> okay. So, but of course, then you have to adjust your uh, your arm, your uh, left left hand. Everything changes, no. Also the bow, because uh, we are used to a big bow, heavy bow, to play like big sounds, sustained notes, legato. And uh, at the end, you, you find like it's a short bow, super light. And yeah, it's so different. And you cannot make a big sound. It's just to make a, a smaller sound, but it's perfect for articulation, different articulation, shorter, longer. Um, yes, totally like this. And another issue, another that it's very difficult this one it's the vibrato <laughs> because we're used to play the vibrato all the time with modern and the technique is like okay continue vibrato continue all the notes all, all fingers but uh, when you go to baroque you don't have to use vibrato at all so it's super difficult uh in the beginning to not use because it goes automatically like your hand goes alone like vibrato vibrato no no <laughs> it's like no please you have to not use it only in some notes you put a little bit of vibrato and depends of of course of the piece of the period of the piece but uh, it's very different uh, different from right i was just going to say that um and going back to the bow the the bow has the the broke bow has Mm -hmm. less you know horsehair on it and also the uh, i would uh, maybe you can comment on this but a lot of it is the, the beginning of the articulation of of the sound that you make you know, with the with the modern bow, that uh, modern bow, you're able to sustain an entire a note, a given note from the frog to the point. That's not so much the no, case with no. the 
with no. the Baroque bow. Um, yeah, exactly. Because normally all life, you are like um, uh, fighting with, okay, I have to really sustain the note. The bow changes, they, they, you cannot notice the bow changes. Your uh, downstroke uh, has to be the same as up bow, you know, you, the note cannot be weaker in, in up in modern. No, it has to be all the same sound, mix, uh, homogeny. Yeah, and you are doing all your life, entire life like this, and then you go to a rock and it's like, wow, surprise. No, it's not like this. Uh, yeah, you don't have to sustain the notes. Um, I, 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 yeah, the contrary, you have to release it at the end of the note, you know? And and also, it's not important about changes if you notice it, because you don't need a big legato and big uh, detaché. And, and then you discover that the important one is downbone and upbow it's not important at all because always has to be weak. Bam, 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 bam. So it's, yeah, you, it's very different conception and approach of the, of the technique. Yes, you have to, to change the entire uh, approach of the bow and the, yeah, and the contact with the string. Because it's different also because uh, metallic strings are stronger and at gut, uh, gut strings, uh, they are so sensible and sensitive and flexible. So the touch with the string, it's completely another world. So yeah, it's very different. Now I ask every Baroque violinist this, what kind of gut do you use? Do you use sheep gut? Do you use any kind of other gut? I know that's like a very specific kind of gut strings that... Uh, I know, I know, like Parashro makes the Eudoxa strings, though I think those are gut. But are there any kind of specific gut that gives you the sound that well, you is, really want? This is a, is a wall that um, I normally you when you are in in metallic strings, it's like wow, you have so many brands and different things to to try. But you go to Baroque and you have the same amount of brands and and, and different strings that you have to try. And also, there is another problem here. Um, because every every string has a a different white. I mean, you can you can put like a, a bigger strings or a slimmer strings. So you it's not only if you like the sound, but also which um, calibre we, we say it in in Spanish. I don't know in in English. You want to use because you can use the sixty four. Mm for an A, but also you can you can use 62, 60. So it's not only the sound, but also the tension that your violin needs. So for example, you have a, a very tense violin, you will have to use softer um, rod strings. But if you have a, a soft uh, setup in your violin, you will need more tension in your strings. So you will have like bigger ones, like 64, 65. So it's like a, a big wall that you you have to get in and and discover because I think every musician in Baroque it's like they are trying every week different setup of strings and uh, yeah but uh, normally we have a lot of of brands you have Aquila you have Toro Lugoleki yeah so it's a wall to discover yeah and similarly to to modern violin. Uh, instrument setups that we also deal with string tension exactly. and we also deal with string lengths 
I think it's a little bit more uh, more specific when it comes to Baroque violin. I don't know if I asked you this. Um, I, you might have answered this um, in the beginning, but um, how long ago did you start Baroque violin? Between the time you started modern and then when you started picking up Baroque, how, what was the time uh, frame there? Well, I, I have been playing more modern, of course, than Baroque, but uh, I, <laughs> yes, I've Surely, been mostly yeah. of my life modern, but it's true that Baroque, maybe it's, been like eight years nine years already so yeah uh, yeah from this festival i mentioned before it's like yeah it, it, it has been such an evolution because i started like knowing nothing about it and after studying and playing with several ensembles and 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 and, and the experience at the end gives you gives you yeah where i'm i i am not right now Nicely, uh, nicely said. I definitely, um, I don't know if I could ever switch to the <laughs> to the Baroque setup. I, for for people who know me, I'm six foot one. I'm very lengthy. I have long arms and I have very big hands. So I think playing Bach would be very easy when it comes to like playing the sonatas and the fugues, particularly the fugues. Um, but that, but um, I want I want to transition into your performance engagements because you perform with a lot of different orchestras. Am I correct to say that you you perform sometimes with the Orchestra of Enlightenment? Is that right? Yes, it's right. It's right. Yes, I I perform with them um, like before the pandemic, the pandemia, and with also with the academy they they have it. Uh, yes, it's extraordinary orchestra, and yeah, I'm I'm eager to 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 go again to play with them because. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yes, it's such a, a nice ensemble. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but they are dedicated, the orchestra is dedicated to trying to perform on period instruments. Am I am yes, I right? Exactly. All these uh, orchestras, uh, Baroque orchestras, they they play all of them with period instruments. And also depends of the, of course, of the period of music you play. Uh, you use also different instruments or different bows. For example, if you play uh, Mozart, Haydn, uh, you will play with uh, a transition bow, which is a little bit longer or more, more like uh, the one we have now. But also you will play with um, with a different violin, not different violin, but maybe you will change the bridge. Because if you have a baroque bridge, you will we will change with a transition also bridge. So yeah, so yeah, uh, when you you go when you dive in this in this baroque uh, wall uh, in this uh, early music wall, yeah, at the end you see that you need so many so many instruments, so many different uh, accessories because it depends of the piece you you play. You have to play it different with with different instruments. Yes. Yeah, you need different equipment. Exactly. I, I can okay. assume. Yeah. 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 Um, when when you do the transition, uh, the transition bridges, do you do that yourself? I, I I can't imagine that you do that yourself. You probably go to a shop to get the transition bridge replaced, right? Yes. Yes. Of course. Of course. I I don't dare to do it myself. I mean, people sometimes they can do it at home, but I I prefer to go to Luthier, and he's doing his job because i think it's it's very difficult to do it yourself and well done yeah right and i can imagine you run the risk of damaging the sound post because of the tension that you have with the strings a a luthier understands that better than most people i mean definitely i'm i'm no i'm i'm no expert luthier but i know that you know when i 
teach my Suzuki students, my Suzuki method students, just like a little adjustment there, a little adjustment there, but I, I can't do it anymore. Uh, do you do any teaching um, in addition to your performance engagements? Yes, um, I, I teach um, in the conservatory and I have like, um, yeah, several students. In Barcelona? Uh, in Barcelona, yes. Uh, in, yeah. With modern violin, of course, I don't, I don't teach Baroque when they're quite young. But uh, uh, teaching is one thing, I, I love it. And, and I think it's, um, it gives you a lot of uh, resources also for, for them to perform. So I, I, I love to, to try to do both things because I think both of them, they, they are connected. And and yes, and also I I did a partnership with um, uh, Central America. Uh, I went to teach uh, there uh, like years ago, and I must say it's it's one of my big experience uh, teaching there. It has been well super super interesting because um, people the the kids there they want to learn so much. Because normally they don't have the the resources the, um, to 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 have uh, good teachers, uh, good uh, uh, instruments. Uh, so when you go there and and you can give them this opportunity, they are so happy and they want to learn so much. And all, all the time they ask you for please uh, tell me this technique, please uh, give me more more technique things or more pieces. And yeah, it was such an incredible experience there um what, which country was it in in central america uh i, I was in el salvador in uh, mm. guatemala uh, costa rica and santo domingo yeah wonderful yeah i have a i have a colleague in ecuador who teaches at the who's a um, musician and uh string teacher at one of the universities in Ecuador. So I was just wanted to, I was curious if maybe I can make that connection there, but the, yeah, I I'm, I'm so happy that you are, that you're teaching, especially during this time during the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, hopefully everything will start opening up even more. So you can see a little bit of that opening up in, in Europe right now um, with, you know, many orchestras, you know, in Germany, you know, the UK is trying to open up a little bit. What's it like in Spain right now with, with your situation and what the country is going through right now um, in terms of the performing arts scene? Well, uh, we can say now um, we are quite lucky because since several months we have uh, concert halls and theaters open. So it's so nice, we, so nice that we can perform still because that's true in Europe. Right now, it's everything closed. Uh, Italy, it's totally closed. France also, and Germany, of course. So we are very lucky we can continue playing in, in these uh, hard times. Actually, I, I was lucky too because uh, like two months ago, I, uh, I was in, in Monte Carlo playing opera with Le Musicien du Prince, that it's a Baroque ensemble. Um, and it was the unique place in Europe that it was able to play because uh, France was closed, but because Monte Carlo, uh, Monaco, sorry, it's an independent country, we could just perform that uh, then. And uh, I was super, super happy to play there. 
And now my, my next engagements are in Austria because we go to, to play in Salzburg Festival like next month and also in August. So let's cross fingers that we can go there because still they have a tough situation, I think. But yeah, we can... Salzburg, home of Mr. Mozart. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. And yeah, it's, there is this big festival that is very important. And we go to, we, uh, uh, with the Le Musician du Prince again with, with Cecilia Bartoli uh, to play two operas there and hope it can be, well, we can be able to, to go and, and make music because it's true that as musicians now, we miss a lot to perform with an audience, a real audience, and make concerts. And yeah, at the end, um, yeah, not make your your job, but make your passion, no? Because it's our passion. So uh, yeah, I think yeah, we really miss that. So Anna, um, you know, you're obviously teaching at the Conservatory in Barcelona, and you know, you're trying to perform as much as you can. Uh, can you speak to our audience today and in terms of how you stay motivated and how you are um, trying to stay motivated and are trying to teach the motivation to your students and try to be positive during this time? Well, uh, it's it's difficult actually to be motivated when you don't have concerts or a performance to do. And even for me, it's super difficult. Actually, during the pandemic, um, I tried to practice, but uh, I just didn't feel it because you don't have an objective to do, no? So because uh, when I was, but before I, I used to travel a lot and touring very much, I didn't have time to do other things. So I, I tried to, to, during the pandemic, I tried to, to, to do other things I normally don't do, don't do like other hobbies and, and things I, I, I like it very much. But it's true that after three months, I was super tired of of these new hobbies. So I started to practice uh, again. No, but uh, it's true that um, uh, for my students, I tried the same thing. No, that uh, like encourage uh, them, like giving him, uh, giving them like lots of new pieces, new techniques. Uh, but it's true that it's it's difficult. No, and luckily now. Uh, my agenda got uh, pretty pretty full, and I have lots of objectives, new concerts, new performance. So I'm super ready to to practice again uh, full time. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm sure if um, anybody has a question in regards to practicing and how to stay motivated, you know, send us an email at violentpodcast@gmail.com. You know, we love to answer some of the, those questions on the podcast with future guests. Um, before we wrap up, Anna, I want to th- say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Are there any sort of projects that you're working on at the moment that you want to share with our audience today to keep an eye out for you? Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, actually, my my biggest project now is to record my first album uh, solo. With this project that uh, we have been talking all these podcasts uh, uh, about uh, violin, baroque violin, and modern violin. So the, um, the idea of this CD is um, it's make uh, sure that uh, we have two contrasts in music. No, we have the the beginning of everything, which it was the beginnings of our period, uh, baroque violin, and with period instruments, and with contrast with what we have now, that it's contemporary music with uh, modern 
modern instruments like the violin and, and piano. So um, I, this project, I played uh, several times in concert, like during these two years. And I found that in the audience, they enjoy it so much because normally when you go to a concert, it's normally one a style of music, it's classical or it's early music, but mix the two things. Um, the, I noticed that the audience was super interesting on, on, on what was going on. And they, have so, they, they had so many questions about how, oh, because why you are using different instruments? Why? It's because the periods, it's because they, they use it to, to, to like, like this in this period of time, or what are the difference be, between one violin or to the other? So I, I realized that people had a lot of questions and a lot of interest with, with these different things, no? And, and I decided that it was really a good project to, to record it. And finally, it will, it will happen in the summer uh, with really nice uh, recording label, a Spanish one. And yeah, I will do some four pieces from the Baroque area with uh, the instruments, period instruments, uh, harpsichord and violin and uh, four other pieces from contemporary era, uh, like uh, two Spanish contemporary uh, musicians and other two pieces uh, from Arbopart and Bevern with violin and piano. And yeah, I'm very excited to mix these two, these two concepts and we'll see what happens if they like it, <laughs> the audience. I oh, I'm so. sure they will. I'm sure they'll love the the concept of the album, and I'm looking forward to listening to it in the summer when um, when when you're recorded and then when it gets released. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Anna, thank you so much. Uh, how can people learn more about you online? Okay, well, they can they can um, check my web the website. It's anurpina.com. Um, there are the new dates of the concerts and all all, all my agenda, also videos. They can follow me in Facebook and, and also Instagram, but yeah. And maybe in also my in my YouTube channel that I'm trying to Yes. Yes, promote the YouTube channel. Yes. 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 <laughs> there are one there are some wonderful high quality uh YouTube videos on your channel. So uh, anybody who's oh, interested you. in any um, any Baroque uh, repertoire, go, go to Anna's uh, YouTube channel and website. I guess you can go to the website and then the YouTube videos are on the website. So maybe it might yes, be easier exactly. to go to the website. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, Anna, thanks so much. Really appreciate you. And if you like this video of the, um, not this video, if you like this episode of the Violin Podcast, please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that way you get notified for when new videos come out, new episodes come out. Um, you know, violent podcast streams on every single platform of your choice. Um, and also leave a leave a rating and leave some comments um, to the violinpodcast.gmail.com email address so that way we can learn about your questions for future guests. And uh, Anna, thanks again. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.